You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. Out of Exodus 21, a different part of the Bible today. The main part is in Genesis 2. You can stay there, but you don't have to go with me because this will be very, very different, I think, from the version of the Bible. Whichever, if you're an NIV, NLT, even message, this is not what you're going to see, Okay. So this is, but this is more fun. The whole point of this is let's have fun, and part of rest is delight. So I'm going to read out of uh, the fourth commandment, um, which is about rest and the Sabbath, out of Exodus chapter 21 in the uh, Hawaiian Pigeon Bible, the rules for the slave people. All right, here it is. I'm going to start from the first commandment and just go down. This the rules you're going to give the people. For them, know what's right and what's wrong. This is a real language. You could literally listen to the guy, read it, and it's more fun than mine is what I feel. So uh, first two. When you buy one Hebrew guy for your slave, he got to be your slave six-year max. From the number seven year, he can go on. He no going to be your slave no more. And he no need pay you nothing, for you let him go. Oh, wait a minute. Where am I at? This is not 21. I'm just like, took, this is literally how long it took me to realize I'm not on the right chapter. <laughs> Here we go. I'm in verse three. I'm like, this, this, isn't, this doesn't sound right. All right, we're in chapter 20. All right, this is 20, verse 1. Then God, then God tell all this. This me, this me, this is, I love this part. This me, verse 2, the one in charge. Your God that stay talk. Was me when get you guys out of the Egypt land? We, you guys, were slaves. You no go take out of gods for me, because me, I the only God for you. No make idol, kind gods for you that look just like something uh, up, from the ski or the sky, or from down here, from top of the earth, or inside the water that stay underneath the ground. No go down in front of the gods for show them love and respect, uh, and no work for them. Because I, your God, as me, the one in charge. And if you go down in front of other, other gods, I want jealous God. As why I, doing, I go and punish the people that uh, do bad, kind things, uh, and the ones that hate me. And if the kinds do the same thing, I punish them too. And same thing uh, with the grandkids. Okay, I'm skipping down to four because this is going to take me forever. Okay, so this is, I'm wasting my time here, daylight, daylight. All right, so this is, this is uh, <laughs> command four in the port we'll focus on today. No forget the rest day. Amen. Uh, make sure the rest day stay special for me. Uh, work six days and do everything you got to do. But the number seven day, that's the rest day. Stay special for me, your God, the one in charge, that day, no work, nothing. You, your boy, your girl, your slave guy, your slave wahine, your animals, the visitor guy from another place that stay in your town, everybody. <laughs> me, the one in charge, I when work six days uh, for make the sky and the earth and the ocean and all the things inside them. But on day number seven, I rest. That's why I tell the rest day good. And I make them special for me. Amen? Did we get anything out of that? Boy, it was like tongues. We might need some interpretation on that one. Um, uh, I will promise you we'll get to that passage in just a moment. But first things first, um, Allen Iverson. So um, one of the things I love about the National Basketball Association is just a, it's just a great uh, place to tell a David Goliath story. You know, when you look at the number one jerseys that are sold in the NBA, they're never like the seven foot ten person. It's always like the little guy, you know, the Steph Currys or the Magic Johnsons who's medium size, uh, the Steve Kerrs, or maybe uh, Allen Iverson. 
So you guys don't watch basketball. Ann Iverson was drafted in 1996. He actually won the MVP. He might have been the shortest person ever won the MVP. He took his team to the finals. Uh, just great. I mean, the very first year he steps on the, <clears throat> the court, he had his own shoe deal already, came out of Georgetown, and he crossed Michael Jordan. Uh, Phil Jackson, I remember the scene vividly, called off the double team and let Michael take him up at the front of the key and put him in a blender for just two dribbles to the right, to the left, and dropped that shot right on Michael Jordan's face. And I don't care if you don't get another MVP in your life, that counts as a trophy or something. You, that counts as an entire championship if you do that. Because you just love to see the little guy you know, versus the big guy. Unfortunately, despite all of Allen Iverson's fame, one of the most infamous things we'll ever remember of him was a little speech that he gave at a press conference called Practice. Uh, practice. This was uh, the, the, the media really like getting into him about why he, um, he didn't show up to practice. And really what his message was trying to say was, why are you basically, why does the media create narratives of people that mainly do everything right and they pick the one little nitpicky thing because they don't have anything to talk about other than the drama, right? So they're nitpicking on him practice. And so what he, what he should have said is, I love practice, but why are we talking about this one little thing I got wrong? Instead, all that comes out is, why are we talking about practice? Which made him sound like he doesn't really care about practice. So I'm going to go ahead and read it. He actually says it 22 times in the speech, but this is the speech from Alan Iverson. <clears throat> if I can't practice, I can't practice. If I'm hurt, I'm hurt. Simple as that. It's not about that at all, but it's easy to talk about. And sum it up, if you just talk about practice. I mean, we're sitting here, and we're supposed to be talking about a franchise player, and we're here talking about practice. Have you heard this speech before? Has anyone heard this speech before? We're talking about practice. I mean, listen, we're talking about practice. Not a game, not a game, not a game, not a, not a game. We're talking about practice, not a game, not the game that I go out there and die for every single day and play every game like it's my last. Not a game. We're out here talking about practice, man. We're talking about practice. I mean, how silly is that? We're out here talking about practice. I know I'm supposed to be there. I know I'm supposed to lead by example. I know that, but I'm not shoving it aside and like it doesn't mean anything. I know it's important. I do. Honestly, I do, but we're here talking about practice. Practice, man. What are we talking about? Practice? What are we talking about? We're talking about practice. We're talking about practice. We're not talking about the game. We're talking about practice, man. And when you come into the arena and you see me play, and you see me play, don't you? Absolutely, the reporter says. And you see me give everything I got? Absolutely. But we're talking about practice right now. <laughs> so we're in this series, right, of Sabbath. And Sabbath is a big word, like the ocean. Little kids can play in it, but you can scuba dive and never find the end. Sabbath means heaven. It's a synonym for everything in its right place. And so it's really both. It's, it's Sabbath is a person. It is a person that we walk with. And you can have a million vacations, but if you don't know Jesus, you don't experience any rest. It's a person. But there's also a lot of people that walk with Jesus, and they're just workaholics. And they think of Jesus as an ethereal thing and his promise that everything is being right, but they believe it situationally. Like, they believe it in the ultimate analysis, but they don't believe it for Tuesday. So they walk with the person of Jesus, but they don't necessarily practice it. Now, the problem with the practice of Sabbath without the person of Sabbath is actually what Jesus says is he runs into all these people, and they're practicing Sabbath, and they miss the entire point. And they won't help their neighbor out of the ditch, and they won't pick the sheep up out of the you know, side of the thing. And so they miss the point. So they have the practice, but they don't have the point. And so Jesus comes to us. You know, it's a really important thing when he gets in the Sermon on the Mount. You know why I'm talking to you right now? It's like, I didn't come to abolish laws. I came to make them full in you. I came to make the Sabbath more than a day, but to make it a part of all of your days, to make it a part of your life, to not forsake the person for the practice, but also not forsake the practice for the person, right? And so... And so we're in this third week, and, and I wanted to um, focus in just on Alan Iverson's word today of that word practice. Uh, there's, there's a great book, you might check it out, called Outliers by my favorite author named Malcolm Gladwell. Have you ever read this book by Malcolm Gladwell? And his whole thesis, uh, many things that lead to success of anybody doing anything, basketball or art or music or spiritual growth or whatever, and, and that is, 
is that practice uh, is, is, the, is the common denominator between basically being a novice and being an expert of anything, really. And he puts a number on it. Do you remember the number? There's a number if you read the book. It's 10,000 hours. It takes about 10,000 hours. Maybe 40 hours a week and however many hours a year. And he's saying, if you want to learn French and become a master at it, like be able to do it like it's in your sleep, it'll take about 10,000 hours. And that's really the distance between the novice and the expert is about 10,000 hours. We become unconsciously competent, he says. It's like the great Maverick in Top Gun 2. You stop thinking, you just do it. There's no distance between, you know, the mechanism that you have muscle memory and your, and your body just sort of extends the competency there. And you find yourself when you're teaching your kid to ride a bike or drive a car, you just feel it. Like, isn't that the annoying thing when somebody just knows how to do something so bad and they start talking like Yoda, like, feel the road you must, you know, and they just start giving these axioms. It's like, this means nothing to me, be the ball. Like, what does that even mean, you know? It's because you're talking to an expert. You're talking to somebody that's 10,000 hours, and they can't even, like, if you paid them, couldn't go backwards to unlearn what they know. Feel the road, you know? And then you're like, tell me something I don't know, right? So, uh, Mike Green, here's a learning square. Did I get it back there? Um, uh, Mike Green does a thing called 3DM, and it's a discipleship thing, and it teaches churches how to uh, raise disciples, you know, not just make converts. And, and anyway, so he talks about this thing called the learning square, and I think that it really maps onto the, um, um, into the uh, $10,000 rule that Malcolm Gladwell is talking about. So what he's saying is that um, when, when you watch Michael Jordan play um, in the NBA Finals, uh, the problem is, is he makes it look so easy you think that you can do it. You're watching it, and it's like, this is so easy. I've got a basketball, I've got a hoop, I'll just stick my tongue out and put on the shoes, and there I am, right? And how do you guys know that this is down your driveway when you're watching it at halftime and you go and practice the move to try and do it? It's a very simple move. He turns around and he shoots it and then it goes in. And you're like, this is easy. I mean, anybody could possibly do this. And what happens is, is that we are watching the NBA finals through what's called unconscious incompetence. We don't know what we don't know, which is a problem because you can't learn when you don't know what you don't know, right? And what happens between you and the driveway is you get out in the driveway and you realize you have now become consciously incompetent. You have realized that all the things that he's making look so easy is actually 10,000 little decisions that you can't even touch the surface of. And this is a black hole of discouragement and death when you realize your conscious incompetence. This is not fun. You don't want to be here. And so you find a coach, hopefully not, you know, like a player that's just really good at it, you know, a Yoda that can just tell you to feel the ball or whatever, but can give you 17 steps and break it all down for you so that you can start to move into conscious competence. But, you know, what Mike Reno will tell you is that even when you're practicing conscious competence, uh, you might be able to do things occasionally successful, but it's not consistently. So that's the time when you get your dad out there and you're like, I hit 10 threes in a row. And you know, your dad comes out there and all of a sudden you're breaking every single one of them because you have a level of conscious competence, but you're not quite asleep in it, right? You're not quite in the place where you're just what in the zone. And so the fourth thing, what Gladwell's talking about in the uh, 10,000 hour rule there is a kind of unconscious competence, uh, a Yoda kind of thing, where if you see LeBron James out there, He's not running as fast as any of those rookies, but he's better than them. The game is like slowing down, and he's doing a hundred little things that all of us could do on accident, on purpose, consistently, and he's not even thinking about it. It's game seven, and there's these people over here, and his coach is yelling at him, and the media is talking trash about him, and he couldn't even unlearn the things that he's learned because it's so built into the muscle memory of who he is that he just plays, and he's not even thinking about it. And so here's the question, right? When you think about somebody that's not just like conditionally restful, but is resiliently restful. Somebody that, uh, that is able um, to have grace under pressure, somebody that is able to experience rest when they're on the beach or the, when they're in the cubicle, when they're being confronted or when everything is going their way. When you, when you see somebody that, that, that walks in a kind of defiant rest, a kind of resilient but not a fragile rest, here's the question. Did that happen to that person on magic or through magic or did it happen to that person through practice? 
If a person is decidedly restful, like, you know, everybody can rest, you know, when all the things are in the right, you know, you got your shoes on and you're in the zone and you're shooting out in your driveway by, by yourself, right? But when, when the storm comes and the water hits, right, and the famine hits and the war happens around you, is the rest inside you greater than the storm and the chaos around you? And when you think about the person that's able to sleep in the boat in the middle of the storm, did it happen through osmosis or through practice? Through a hundred different decisions. That's, that's the question. So Jesus comes and tells us that the Sabbath is no longer a command because it's fulfilled. Jesus didn't take any of those laws and get rid of them like, oh, that was an old idea. We don't... No, he's like, he's saying it's not on a list of piece of paper because it's inside of you now because it's part of all of your days. It's not just one day. He's not getting rid of rest. And then Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 12 that it's, that it's a colorful practice, but it's still a practice. Like, remember what he says? He doesn't say just because it's not illegal to not practice the Sabbath that nobody should practice it. He's saying that it's not commanded and we should operate in the law of the Torah, which is to love your neighbor, through faith and not laws. But that doesn't mean he's getting rid of the concept, the principle of Sabbath rest. Okay, and so this is the idea is that Jesus and, and, and Paul seem to be saying that just because we've gotten rid of Sabbath command as a day does not mean we've gotten rid of it as a way. That it should be a way, a strong and resilient way that all Christians at all time practice, but not just to practice in their driveway, to get into the game for the best parts of life and hold that posture seven days a week. So maybe you've taken a, a vacation before or taken a week off and something you're really ticked about stays kind of dissettled in your heart into your soul, but your anxiety level about that particular topic has declined. What does the Bible say? Like, anger's not a sin. It's quick to anger that's the sin. That's the problem. It's, it's that, okay, so you're still angry about this event that took place in your personal life or in political life, but after you take the walk around the block or take 24 hours, you still have that discontent, but you're not ruled by it anymore, right? And so what, what I think the Bible is saying is don't get rid of that discontent, don't hide your head in the sand, right? But just shorten the fuse so that it takes less time for you to get to here, that in anger, what we're trying to do is get to the point where we are still holding that discontent without it letting it rule over us. And I think that if we, if we were to see Sabbath as rest, is that, is that we actually see the ability for the distance between hot-tempered and angry and calm and restful, but with a settled disposition about something, for that wick to get, to get shorter and shorter so that we're able to get to that quicker and quicker. I was running with Greg the other day, and Greg's a great runner. If you ever want to learn how to run, just go run with Greg. Greg's a great runner. And one of the things he was talking about with speed workouts to get faster at running is actually don't just you know, run to exhaustion and go home. Run to exhaustion, take a break, and then start running again. Take a break and then start running again. Because what he's saying is that the muscles that are in you know, cardiovascular stuff and operations inside you, and then the muscles that are in your body are actually recovering when you're resting. And he's saying that as you build up your, the muscles that are in your body inside and on the outside of your body, internal, external, is, is that what you find is that the breaks that you need to take between each increment of running get shorter and shorter. And so what happens is, is that the training is just shrinking and shrinking and shrinking until you don't have any more breaks anymore at all. Now, I'm not saying that that means that you don't have a Sabbath, but the point is, is that the Sabbath is not just one day. It's for all the days. It affects all the different days. You might have like a grace and truth situation where you take a step back, you peel back, and you get a perspective. And before, where you're in, you only, have a, you only had a, um, a two-way street in front of you. Either I give this person the truth and smack them over the head with it and tell them what I really think, or I let them, I love them, which means kind of let it slide and let it slide off my back. That in pulling away of Sabbath, sometimes the pull away gives us this perspective where we can actually see with nuance, color, texture, and definition and resolution where there's actually a third way. Have you ever found that before? That pulling away from the perspective actually gives you this third way 
that allows you to see the thing in a new possible light. And so this is the idea. I don't think it's any different from any other type of a practice that in pulling away, the practice is not for the sake of escaping, but it's for living uh, fully in the world that we live in, that the practice of Sabbath actually builds up the muscle memory and the muscle endurance within our hearts and within our minds to actually affect all the different days. In other words, Sabbath is not just one day. It affects all the days and the ways that we live them. So this is what I would want to focus on today, looking at Genesis 2 and really breaking down exactly what that uh, verse is saying in terms of what the, the Sabbath is originally in terms of the Torah law and seeing how that might apply to us through Jesus because, and this is why, because we have many days in front of us. We have good days in front of us. We have our best days in front of us. We have our worst days in front of us. And oftentimes, the way that we rest into that day is not because of what happens to us, but the posture that we take it with. The posture that we take it with. And so there's three different words that I I want to look at when it comes to the practice of rest. And I'm actually going to give five or six little ideas for us. And again, these are not rules, but they're just suggestions. They're examples of the way that we might practice rest around these three different words. But I'm going to pick these words right out of Genesis 2, and the three words are this, uh, to stop, to delight, and to worship. I'm going to say that again. Uh, God says on the, on, on, the, on the day of Sabbath that this day, what does he say? This day, um, God rested. God rested. And so because God rests, rests, we stop. Secondly, he says that the day is blessed. He says the day is blessed. And because God says that it's blessed, and through Jesus we're blessed, we delight. We delight in our days. And lastly, God says that the Sabbath is holy, and through Jesus that is fulfilled but not abolished inside of us so that we will worship. The Sabbath day is for worship because God says that it's holy. So let's just take a look um, at Genesis uh, chapter 2, if I can find it here. All right, here we go. So Genesis chapter 2 says this. I'm going to read it basically three different times today. Not a ton of scripture when it comes to the main text, but verses 2 and 3, I'm just going to read it one time. It says, By the seventh day... God had finished the work he had been doing so that on the seventh day he rested from all of his work. And then it says in verse 3, Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work that he had created and that he had done. Let me read it one more time. Verse 2, By the seventh day God had finished the work he had been doing so that on the seventh day he rested from all of his work. When God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work he had created and all that he had done. You don't have to go there, but I'm going to read um, just one passage uh, out of Exodus um, to show a bit of a compare and contrast, and then we're going to come back to that passage. Um, So in Exodus um, chapter uh, 5, there's a showdown between the Israelites and Egypt. And as you remember, the whole reason why there was a conflict between Israel and Egypt over the Passover, which ultimately led to the ten plagues and the exodus of the people, was all around this topic. It was the Sabbath. Do you remember that? And so um, when you look at the law of the command that God gave, the one that I read in Hawaiian Pigeon earlier, there's actually two renditions of the Sabbath law. The first one I read in Hawaiian Pigeon was the first one that comes out of Exodus, but there's another one out of Deuteronomy. Okay? So in Exodus... Uh, the law tells us and reminds us of Genesis chapter 2, the one that I just read. The reason why we rest is because God does. But if you look at Deuteronomy chapter 5, he goes through the entire thing. <clears throat> he goes through the entire command again, but he gives us a different reason. Now, here's what it is. In the first time that it's ever mentioned to the people of God, why they should rest is because God rested, the one out of Genesis 2 that I read. 
But the second time it's listed in Deuteronomy, the second reading of the law, verse 15 says, Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God had brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Did you see the compare and contrast? That both of the two times that the command is given, first to the first generation and then to the second generation, it's the same command to, to rest. But the rationale is different in the second rendition in Deuteronomy 5, because in Exodus, it's saying, rest because God did, and in Deuteronomy, it's saying, rest because Pharaoh doesn't. That there's two reasons, actually, why we Sabbath. One, because it reminds us of Eden, and two, because it resists Egypt. So here's the little speech, right? The little showdown comes, and this is how Pharaoh re- responds. Hey, let my people go. I was brought out of the desert. My name's Moses. I was told, you know, to, uh, as a prophet to, to let my people go and, uh, and, and, to, and to reveal who Yahweh is and to reveal his character in front of Pharaoh, in front of the nations, in front of Israel. And here's Pharaoh's response. This is Pharaoh's response. A uh, couple of quotes out of Deuteronomy, uh, or out of Exodus 5. I don't know who this Lord is. I'm not going to let you go. Quote, get back to work. Verse 5, Pharaoh says, look, the people of the land are now numerous and you're stopping them from working. That's what Pharaoh says. Pharaoh says in, uh, in verse 7, Exodus 5, you're no longer the supply to supply the people with straw for making bricks and let them go and gather their own straw. No, require them to make the same amount of bricks, the same quota, with less supplies. Just reduce the quota, but expect the same amount. You know why? They're lazy. They're lazy. This is what Pharaoh says. And that is why they're crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Lazy, 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 lazy. Verse 9, make them work harder for the people so that they can keep on working and pay attention to none of these lies. This is Pharaoh's quote. Lastly, in verse 17, he says, lazy, that's what you are, lazy. That is why you keep saying, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now get to work. You will not be given any straw, yet you must produce the full quota of, book, of, of bricks. So the command of the people of God in the desert, first for the first generation and the second for the second generation, is to Sabbath. And that's not only because in Sabbath we are remembering Eden, but also in Sabbath we're resisting Egypt. We're resisting the constant quota making of of, of of, uh, of Pharaoh and his kingdom, the clashing of that kingdom. So going back again to Genesis chapter 1, this is, again, what we just read a moment ago, Genesis 2, rather, to remember that the reason for rest is because this is what Eden did. Verse 2, by the seventh day, God finished his work he had been doing, and so on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. In other words, Pharaoh, the voice of Pharaoh in the scripture is saying, more, more bricks, more quota, less straw, more, not enough, not enough, buy more, spend more, sell more, think more, plan more, do more, work, 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 but God says the opposite. God says rest. God says I'm finished. God says I'm done. Secondly, Pharaoh says lazy. This is why the people aren't working, because they're lazy, because they didn't work hard enough yesterday, and so they're trying to make up for the fact that they're lazy today, so I'm going to make them work more to make up for the stuff that they didn't get done yesterday, and so they're lazy, they're lazy, they're lazy, but look at verse 3. This is the exact conflict with what Pharaoh is saying in his creation. God's creation says this, that God blessed the seventh day because it's blessed, that it shares life with me, that it's fruitful and it multiplies because it's connected to me. And lastly, Pharaoh, whenever they're asked, you know, can, can Israel leave, Pharaoh always says, tomorrow, 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 because it's not quite done yet. God says it's blessed and it's holy, that it's whole and complete. And that is why we rest from our work. And so um, I don't know if you're like me. I, I had like the man version of COVID, you know, like um, uh, I didn't have a crazy symptom and I understand it hits us all in different ways. And so I'm not trying to be 
unsympathetic or whatever, but I had like a very light, brief bout with COVID, but I was super contagious. It doesn't matter if you know what your symptoms are. And so I basically stayed in my room and caught up on Disney Plus for like seven straight days. It was unbelievable. And my poor wife, she had a great attitude about it, but I don't think she was that happy about it. Because in the meantime, life kept going on, and I was completely fine on the inside, but I was in a little bubble. And everyone's treating me like a baby. Like, my mom's like, here's your little smoothie that I brought for you. And she, like, passes it through the window. Meanwhile, like, Kyra's, like, scrubbing all the toilets out there on her own. And she's like, this guy, you know. I think it's out the gate, man. Like, it's out of the gate that God wants us to know that the command of rest is stern and simple to us, And not only does he command us to do it, but he vouches for it in saying, this is you imitating me. He's already anticipating, this is why he gives the doctor's orders, that you're going to come back with him all types of different excuses of, well, it's been a really busy week, and I'm really extroverted, and this is for the kingdom of God, and I've got to keep church running, and all my friends still need this, and my kids still need this. And it seems that Genesis 1 continues to meet us in that moment to continually say, but God rested. God rested. Did you, are you God? Did you make yourself? Do you run the universe? God rested, and it's still saying, as we come to him with all his excuses, he's still saying, I rested. And so I'm commanding you not to do as I don't do, but to do as I do to extend the blessing onto the earth is that because I rest, you must rest. I've been slowly being transitioned, you know, into we live in a show economy. Like I used to love the movies, and the movies are a place that I would go, and they'd be 90 minutes long. But you know how they get you? The shows, they're not 90 minutes long. There's 40 minutes you know, because if I go through Netflix, I'm like, ah, oh, I'm a responsible human being. I can't watch a show for 90 minutes. I don't have 90 minutes. But then, you know, Stranger Things come up, and it's like, well, I do have 40 minutes. You know, I could watch it for potentially 40 minutes. And the genius of the show is great because, you know, shows have episodes, but then they also have seasons, and they also have series, is that shows know how to get done before they're finished. Shows can roll the credits without all the types of things, t- you know, completely wrapped up. They're not all settled down, but they're just done. And they appreciate a Selah. They appreciate the ending of the episode that gets you ready for the next one. And could I suggest to you that what God is showing us in this six-in-one rhythm is that, you know, we live our lives more like shows than movies in the sense that it's never quite done, right? But God is finished. And that has been, you know, the invitation, I think, of this study this entire time is to rest based on what he's done, not based on what, what I've done. And so I just put up six ideas up here, okay? Just six ideas. Because isn't it funny how when you're stirred up at night and you're trying to go to bed, the transitions are difficult. Like at 6 o'clock in the morning, I wish I could tell 1 o'clock in the morning, Oliver, to get to bed. Like just go to sleep. At 6.30 in the morning, you don't have to convince me to go to sleep. I don't need an Ambien to go to sleep. I'm just ready to sleep. And what is it about transitions that makes it hard to stop at nighttime and hard to start in the morning time that the transition is really where the victory lives, right? It's the ability to stop something and start something up because once you're going in a certain direction, it's hard to change directions, So just a couple of ideas, because this is what it basically means, the Sabbath. If it's not a day, it must be a way. And the Sabbath, if if you just translate it completely from a lexicological position, like what does it actually mean? It just means to stop, okay? So this is just a couple of ideas as you think about treating your life more like an episode than like a movie. It's to start wrapping up at 4.30, I don't know what that means for you, where you work. You know, you might be a nurse, and that's not really possible, or you might be at home with the kids, and it never stops, right? But the idea is, it's to finding, finding the, the stopping point of when the deadline is to stop, not because it's done, right, but because you're finished, and start slowing down early, to slow the car down at 4.30. There's something that communicates a level of dignity and celebration and respect when you don't just crash your car into the end of your work week and then run out of the office with all your pens and, you know, laptop cards and papers all filling out. Because basically what it's telling yourself is that 
man, I didn't really get it done. I lost today, but I'll just have to catch up next week, and I'm not putting anything away because I don't really want to put it away. But there's something almost spiritual and dignifying and, and, and good about wrapping the thing up and putting everything back where it belongs, closing up. I know you can't empty the whole entire email thing, but just saying I'm going on my weekend or whatever it may be and closing up the text message so it's not hanging open. Number two, on the way home from work, you might think about a couple of wins and, and a list of struggles because the, the voice of Pharaoh will continually be monotonous about why you didn't get this done and why you didn't get that done. And for whatever reason, we tend to fixate, don't we, on the things we didn't get done versus celebrate the things that we did. And potentially wrapping that up might be helpful just as, as, as a practice. Number three, uh, you got to love Mr. Rogers. I mean, he obviously did something right. Everything, every time that Mr. Rogers got started, he would come home and he'd take these little kid shoes. Matter of fact, I wore my Mr. Rogers shoes, I guess, on accident. And what did he do? He'd sing his little song and he'd take little shoes as the Oakley Doakley neighborhood and Oakley Doakley or whatever. And he'd put the shoes on and he'd change shoes. What does that do? It tells your body and your family and it tells everybody, like, I'm not there, I'm here. I'm not living there while I'm here. And changing the shoes and changing the routine and changing the music and changing things is really important because we're human beings. We're not robots. And, and slowing down off of work and decelerating is important in the practice of stopping. Number four, a thought of, of, of an idea of starting a Monday list. Things will come to us as we begin to slow down into Friday afternoon or whatever your weekend is into Saturday. And you're going to start to think of some things, maybe some genius things, maybe some things that are some problems that you didn't fix or some genius things that are finally clicking, you know, clean, clicking for you because you have some white space in your head. What does it look like just to take your phone out to tell Siri to remind you on Monday? It's a fine thing. We're just not talking about it right now, right? Because we're stopping, and you can't stop when you're starting, so you got to stop and not start. <laughs> stop and don't start. And lastly, for those of us uh, that, are, that are with families, what does it look like to just do a big five-minute tidy or ten-minute tidy for some reason, maybe an hour tidy or whatever? But in the Jewish tradition, they hustled all the way to sundown to get their food ready for the Sabbath day because the Sabbath day is the best time of year. And so it's hustling together and getting the family on the same page to put the week away because the new day is about to start. Uh, as a matter of fact, sundown in, in the Jewish calendar actually begins at sunset, not at, at sunup. So these are some ideas. Are you with me still? I think I, I, I jumbled up some of my outline this morning, so I want to make sure that we're on track. Sabbath is a practice. It's not just a promise. You can be a workaholic for Jesus and somebody was already crucified for our sins, so we don't need to be a second martyr, right? We are living in the Sabbath rest that Jesus has provided for us. And so inside of that practice, we have two different voices that are hollering at us all day long, which is the blessing of Jesus and the promise of Sabbath rest that comes through Jesus or the taunts of Egypt, the continual more, more, uh, you know, lazy, 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 tomorrow, 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 you're going to rest. And you're hearing those two voices and you're saying, practice doesn't make perfect, it makes permanent. And I'm going to practice for the best parts of my life. It's not an escape, but it's practicing listening to a different voice with my body and not just with my theology. And it's practicing and it's starting uh, on a Friday, if it is going to be like a daily, daily rhythm. All right, let me just bring it back in and see if I can find my way here. All right, Genesis 2, I'm going to read it one more time. We're going to pick out a different word. Genesis 2, verse 2, by the seventh day, as before, God had finished from all the work that he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all of his work. And then he blessed the seventh day, and he made it holy. That's the second word I want to point out, is blessing. You know, blessing in our vocabulary usually means like things are going pretty well for us. But the word blessing, when it originates from Genesis 2, really has to do with proximity. That blessing is moving from separate from God and distant from God and disconnected from God, which equals death. And blessing, in its real core mechanical sense of what it means, is it means to share, to share life, to extend God's rule and reign, to be fruitful and to multiply. That's where the blessing lives. You can't have blessing without God. That's an oxymoron. So blessing is the reuniting of heaven and earth 
inside of our lives, and so the blessing is Jesus. That's what, that's what Jesus did when he sat up on the Sermon on the Mount and he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. He's saying, I'm going to take your curse and I'm going to give you my portion of blessing. So to live in the Sabbath, according to Genesis 2, and then through Jesus, according to the Sermon on the Mount, is to live with Jesus, to live life with Jesus, which means to delight in everything that he's done. To, to illiterate, this is how, the, how does the Bible get off commanding us to rejoice in every circumstance? How on earth could you possibly do that? We rejoice because we are not cursed, we are blessed. And anyone, no matter where they are, if they have a proximity to Jesus, is blessed, and therefore the posture of the blessed life, the happy life, you know, blessing means happy, is to delight, to be a son, not to be a slave, to just simply delight and rest in what Jesus Christ has done for us. That is what it would mean to be blessed inside of the new covenant. And so, um, I don't know if you guys have ever seen this movie. It's called um, A Beautiful Life. Uh, it was an old movie that came out in 1998. It's an Italian movie. It's all in Italian with the subtitles. I know you're already zoned out because you're like, an Italian, I can't read all these subtitles. I barely want to read, you know, uh, my emails anymore, right? Um, but it's a beautiful movie, and it's basically about this guy who gets uh, shipped off to a concentration camp with his son, and uh, he just refuses to fall victim to the fear and the ugliness of the Nazi internment camp. And so he creates this little game show that he, illusion that he puts his son into and says, hey, this is not, you know, a perilous place of life and death. This is actually a game that we're going to hide from the soldiers and have a really good time. And it's a movie that's all about the shifting of perspective from the heart of a father toward, towards a kid. So it's a great movie and you should take, check it out um, if you have extra time at the library, I suppose. Uh, but in it, I think it teaches a very important lesson. You remember they would talk to Jesus all the time and they were frustrated with him. You know why? Because he hung out with sinners. Remember that? Like, he, would, he was busy. He's the son of God. He's got a lot to do, but he's hanging out with the ugliest people that you could possibly think, you know, tax collectors and prostitutes. We like child abusers today and molesters entirely. You know, he's hanging out with these guys, and not only that, he's doing table fellowship with them. You know, that means, like, actual, I'm, I'm communing with you, and I'm doing fellowship and, and hanging out with you. And, and, and they ask him these questions. Why is it that all these other disciples are fasting, but you come eating and drinking? Everyone else is commanded to fast. How come you are feasting? And he's like, how on earth could you be with the bridegroom and not feast? That's his answer. His answer is, there is a time for fasting, but not when the, when the Son of Man is here and when he's at your table. And so what we are doing when we are resisting Pharaoh and when we are rejoicing in the finished work of the cross is we are allowing the finished work of the cross and his delight and his blessing over us to mean more to us than the curses around us. It's never going to be done. This is what Jesus says. The poor are always going to be with you. The laundry list is always going to be there. There's always going to be cancer. There's always going to be somebody sick. There's always going to be something undone. There's always going to be a problem. But how can you fast when the Son of Man is at the table? How can, you, how can you fast and pout out in the field when there's a party and your son is coming home? So Jesus is coming. He's saying, I'm giving you this blessing on the Sermon on the Mount that comes through me at an expense, and it's disobedient not to rejoice as a Christian. It's a command to rejoice as a Christian. Maybe not a command to celebrate the Sabbath, but it is a command to delight. A couple of practical ideas for us as family, as singles, as people that are empty nesters, as people with kids is to make a list, to be a curator of what brings delight. This is the idea. This is what delight would mean. It means to ask yourself, if I didn't have to be responsible, and if I didn't have to solve problems, and if I was just a kid again, if I was just a son, if I was just a daughter, what would I really want to do? I mean, no one really asks you that question. What do you want to do? So we would make a list. You know, we've fallen out of practice of it, but I remember back in the day, we'd make a list, and me and Kyra, we would rate one through ten. Be like, go to the library, I'd be like, negative four, or whatever. You know, like we would just list off the things, and if it didn't pass the inspection of an average seven, we ain't, we ain't gonna do it. It can't be restful without worship, it can't be worshipful without restful, it can't be fun for her and not fun. For her. Like it has to be something, and so that's gonna take a little bit of planning to list the whole thing out and curate the whole thing. 
You know, but the problem is, is like, I think because we would rather be uh, lazy in our creativity and, and allow ourselves to be powerless and a victim to the reason, and we give other people outside of our scope the reason why we're not doing the diligence of delighting in Jesus is that we don't have a list. We don't know if we would do if we had the time. So it's easy to give the time away because you don't have anything to fill up that margin anyways. So here's the question. Ask yourself what you'd want to do. And maybe somebody in this room is going, I want to go to Puerto Rico. Dadgum, I'm going to go to Puerto Rico, right? Well, maybe you can't go to Puerto Rico this weekend. I'm not trying to be a bummer. I'm not trying to be Pharaoh. But here's the concept. Number two is take the idea and scale it. What is it about Puerto Rico that's so great? I don't know. Go down there and get a pina colada down at the supermarket. I don't know what it is. Identify the core value of the thing that you're looking for and do what you can do, not what you can't. These are practical ideas. These are not commands, obviously. But the idea here is that, number three, the the idea here, what's at stake is slavery and sonship. When you are practicing piano or playing the violin or you're just swimming and not having to be responsible for anything and not having to do anything and not have to be a check marker to you know, prove your existence and you're just doing something just to be in the moment, it communicates sonship instead of slavery. It says that I'm a human being. And so that's the idea is the language of hobby and the language of delight. What does it look like to create a list of these types of things and say yes to them so that the tyrants of our time don't come and choke them out um, as the weekend comes? Number four, what would it look like to put the phone away and put watches away in general? What would it be like to not even know what time it is? Wouldn't that be amazing? What would happen to your mind and your heart and your soul when you wouldn't know if it was literally, is it 10 o'clock in the morning or 3 o'clock in the morning? What would that do to your head if you simply practiced the putting away of time? The putting away of time and not being irresponsible, but being unresponsible for an hour or six hours or 24 hours. And lastly, um, the little things. At number five, I don't know if the list got on there, but the little things. One of the things I think that does happen with rest is that we don't have to binge and go, trace, go, go chase getting drunk and go overdoing it and, and, and going to um, go and find things to quell our spirit. Oftentimes, I think if you do the first step, which is to stop, to get all the way down to zero miles an hour, one of the fun things about being at zero miles an hour is that the simple things start to have texture again. That simple walks and tea and poetry, it's like that's, I think, the goal is to get the stop before the delight because the little things actually become delightful. I realize I don't have to go to Puerto Rico. That's not really what... I need because I have Jesus, and, and, Je- and, and then the Spirit can show us over, those, um, over that rhythm exactly what the little things that would represent delight for us just in Friday afternoon or Saturday morning or Saturday evening um, or any given time that could help us practice uh, delight. All right, lastly, um, the Sabbath is uh, holy. Let me uh, read this last passage for us. So in verse 3, it says that God blesses uh, the seventh day, and it says he makes it holy. I mean, this is the difference between it being a vacation. This is not like a bohemian, you know, little trip where we're just kind of hanging out and um, uh, just escaping from our problems. He says, the reason why I've created the seventh day is, one, to demand that it's finished and that Pharaoh doesn't run the, the clock down here. Number two, to declare that it's blessed, that even when it's still broken on the outside, that Jesus is working a blessing into your life and that Jesus is finished through the cross of Calvary in your life. So number two, that it's blessed. But lastly, that it's not just rested, it's not just blessed, but that it's holy, because God has rested from all the work that he had created and all the things that he had done. And so lastly, that it's not just rested, that it's not just blessed, but that it is holy. That the Holy Spirit, it says, alighted on Jesus like the dove. And so the Holy Spirit, the reason why we rest is because the Holy Spirit rests on us. The reason why we, the reason why we delight is because the Father says to us through Christ that he is well pleased with us. And so that's why we would hobby. That's why we would sleep. That's why we would do things that are not irresponsible, but they are unresponsible. 
And this is why we would uh, worship on the Sabbath is because he is holy. When you think about the word holy, holy just means to be set apart. It doesn't mean to be scary. It doesn't mean to be mean. It doesn't necessarily mean to be a burning furnace that's going to burn everybody up. It just means that he's different. It means that nobody's loving like him. Nobody's creative like him. He is the source, not the resource. Like he's the beginning, not the end. Like us creatures get the conflation wrong of we see the creation and we start to think that it's creator, but it's not. And so to that, God says, you know how I'm going to rebuke that? I'm going to tell you, I'm holy. There is a difference between a creation and a creator, and I am not the creation, I'm the creator. And that's what holiness means. He says, he's saying the Sabbath is holy. So I think what it would mean in terms of the practice, like if Pharaoh says more, 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 and God says rest, enough. And if Pharaoh says lazy, 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 and God says blessed, okay? Then if Pharaoh says tomorrow, 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 it'll be right. Tomorrow, it'll be right. You know, God says, um, no, this day is holy. It's made holy in my name. And so therefore, we practice worship. We practice worship. So I was, um, I was uh, a senior in high school, and I had applied for a bunch of colleges. I really wanted to go to Notre Dame. And um, all of my buddies went there. It was a super expensive school. I want to say it was like thirty or $40,000 a year or whatever. And a lot of my buddies that went to that college got like a full ride scholarship. They got like the merit scholarship. Plus, if your dad went to the school, then you'd get the free ride or whatever. So like some of these kids had like the double free ride. They had the tuition paid and the books. So I had nothing, right? So that was the end of the road for me and the you know, fighting, fighting Irish. Went to IU, Hoosiers, go Hoosiers. Not Bobby Knight, but go Hoosiers. Bobby Knight was not there. And uh, onwards and upwards. But I did manage to get um, like a little, like I filled out all the little different uh, scholarships and I got this one scholarship just from a guy, just a random guy, and it wasn't because, you know, being Asian or because of SAT or whatever else. He just kind of had this thing, and he just sort of selected and chose. And I got a $5,000 scholarship to go to IU. I got 5,000 times four years, and it was pretty awesome. The only contingency was I was supposed to go and meet him. And, you know, it was really interesting. I think the Lord used it as a closure moment for me. I was so frustrated and, you know, bummed out about not going to Notre Dame. But I remember sitting down with this guy at Barnes & Nobles, and he just asked me a bunch of questions to pull me aside and by the end of it, now in Indiana, there's not a ton of Christians when you meet people, but this guy was a Christian, and he prayed for me, and he blessed me in my year, and I always remembered that this guy took the time not only to give me money, but to send me off with a blessing and with prayer, right? So I think what happens is with this whole, with this whole stop to delight and then delight into worship is that we realize that every gift in our life has a hand to it. I think that's what he's calling us when he says that the Sabbath is holy. He says the Sabbath is holy, which means that we're not just taking a vacation from our problems, but we're taking a... A, a realization of everything that I have in my life is good through Christ and that it's come to me through a good and perfect gift in the hand of a loving father. And that's why I think it's important that we don't just rush into Sunday and start singing the songs is because when we stop, we actually allow our body to recognize the color, the texture, and the blessing in our life so that we're actually grateful. And so that the, the, the gratefulness that we have, the gratitude of the good gifts and everything that we have in our life, whether it's relationships or, um, or healing or health or or, or financial things, that we recognize those things come to us not through a paycheck, but through a hand that feeds us. And that it's called holy because I realize the creation is not the creator. There's a dif difference between that, and I just get to look up to, to the Father that has given everything that I've found in my hands through the Sabbath rest, and I just say thank you. I give you praise. I worship you. And to not skip that step, not to escape from problems, but to, to lean into worship in Sabbath, this is, I think, the three-part command that I find in Genesis that has come to us through Jesus that he has given us a Sabbath rest that's not become just a day, but it's, in, it's a way. It's an everyday kind of a thing. A couple of thoughts when it comes to, comes to, to prayer. We're going to start a new prayer uh, journey um, in July, uh, just breaking down what it means to see prayer as talking with God and not just talking at him. And there's three big words. I think that some of us are really good at one, but maybe two and maybe not three, all three words. But there's three big words, I think, that you see in the Lord's Prayer. 
You know, and that is, uh, number one, thank you. Some of us are, are good, and some of us are not great at saying thank you. But that's what worship is. It's to come to the end of my Sabbath and say, everything has come from your hand. Thank you. Secondly, sorry. Sorry is a very important word in the Bible, and anyone who says that they're, not, they're without sin is a liar, is what First John says. And so when I come into his presence and I come to the end of the day and I realize I've been acting more like a slave than a son, I just say, I repent, I'm sorry, I come home. And lastly is please, please. Coming to him with a sense of, of prayer doesn't just change me, it changes him. And he's called me to pray to impact his heart. And I want to come to him and I want to have a relationship with him and talk to him and just say, please, I want to ask for your kingdom to come and your will to be done. Had a really awesome time this last weekend. Um, Jimmy, a guy that goes to our church, he's a physical uh, trainer, I think, or therapist. Um, he taught me how to fix my neck. You ever sleep with your neck the wrong way like this? And you wake up and you just, you ever have that? Isn't that awful? Jimmy's like, I can solve that problem. I was like, Jimmy, I don't believe you. You're going to have to prove it to me. He's like, I can You know, it's like, so he said, next time, give me a call. So I called Jimmy. I called Jimmy. And uh, Kyra had the neck thing. And I had the neck thing tonight. And this is what he said. If you guys, I'll give you this one for free if you're not paying attention to the sermon. Okay? You just go like this. And he just, it's real simple. You just give yourself a double chin. I'm serious. It was that simple. We did it four or five times. And it was just like, I, like we heard a little crack thing, both for Kyra and then this morning for me. And, it just, and I was like, really that easy? Seriously? I'm going to have to call him about hiccups and the common cold next. But like, you know, like he's just solving all my problems, right? I think that's what worship does is it puts us into this place of alignment, right? When I say thank you, what am I saying? I'm saying, oh, I thought that that was a wage, but it was a gift. You can work in my resting, that's what's coming. It's like, don't, don't stop and delight and then forget to worship. Oh, this is a gift. Two, like, I'm sorry. I'm not a superhero. I'm a son. And I don't have all the answers and I don't have the solutions. And so I'm aligning myself. It's like visiting the chiropractor. Lastly, please, please, I'm, I'm seeing myself as the major language between me and you is not, let me just meditate and like fix my life with all the truths that you give me, but to actually come to you with asking, seeking, and knocking. That's what healthy prayer looks like. And if we come to an end of a Sabbath and we have no worship for him and seeing him as separate from our creation, then we won't come to him as a son, receiving gifts, asking things, seeking of things. And I think this is what the command would look like if we looked at the three words, the ingredients of worship that's set up in Genesis chapter 2. Four or five different ideas. Number one, going on a prayer walk. Um, I know me and Kyra will wake up in the morning and we'll do what's your grateful, what's your true, um, what's important today. Um, those are three things that you could talk about on a prayer walk. Number two, uh, dinner questions. I've got, you know, tons of intentional questions. If you'd ever uh, ask me or text me, I'll email to, me, to, to you. But things like, what's your high and what's your low? What are you learning about Jesus? Are you acting more out of joy in comparison? There's lots of different questions that get the conversation going, but to facilitate getting alignment with him at the end of a Sabbath day at a dinner, doing communion. Um, another one is making sure to start the Sabbath on a Saturday so that uh, by the time we enter into worship, we're, we are, we're actually on the trail end of stopping and delighting and having lots of things to be worshipful about here on Sunday morning and to give our first and to give our best. Like, if we're just getting done with the work we don't get paid to, for on Saturday, then think about it, then Sunday morning starts off like we're pretty tired and we're coming into church, a place that we can offer and give and serve and lift one another up on zero miles an hour, whereas if we start Sabbath early, then we enter into worship here on Sunday morning. Um, uh, I'll, I'll leave the, la the last two uh, for some other time, I suppose. Let me just uh, close with this, and I think that might have to be um, all for today uh, as I close up this, uh, this little outline. But um, one of the things, I'll just leave you with this, is that, you know, they'll tell you as, as a married couple to remember to date your mate, you know? Like, you don't want to go on a date because it's like, you know how much it costs? Yeah, I realize how much it costs 
By the time you even leave the door, like you're driving down the road and you're like, that was $10. You like roll down your window and like, there's $10 and there's $10 and there's $50. You know what I mean? And you go to the restaurant and like you're basically maybe even on edge of like almost in a fight anyways because everybody's exhausted, right? And you show up and like you have to dress up and your stuff doesn't fit anymore because like you haven't gone on a date, you know, in six months. And you show up, it's like high risk, low reward. This is why we don't do it. This is why we go to Target. You know, like, I don't want to go to here. I don't want to throw money out the window, get in a fight, come home, right? And have the kids like set something on fire while I'm gone. I'm just over it. So let's just skip all that drama, right? And tell you the date you're mate, right? Because it's, the date is not just for the date, just like the Sabbath. It's for all the dates. It's calibrating the relationship. It's bringing it back to rest and aligning it. Like before we are taskmasters in this house, like we're in love, you and me are like, we, we, we are one in this covenant. And Jesus has called us as the third person in this covenant to be lovers first. And it's just very easy for the practice and the mundane and all the things that hit us day after day to tell us in theory we're married, but in practice we don't practice like we're married. Right? That's the idea. Did I confuse somebody? I, I don't mean, I'm not saying we're just married in theory. I don't know if somebody <laughs> seemed like they were phased by that. I, I'm using it as a sermon illustration. As a hyperbole, as a hyperbole, what I'm saying is, it is very easy to call yourself a son but live as a slave. It is easy to get into the rut of believing in the person of Jesus but practicing none of it. And it will take us. This is why, this is why it will take insistency and consistency because the odds are against us. Because everything around us is saying more and lazy and tomorrow. Everything in your world, everything in your mind, everything in the culture is saying more you know, you're lazy and tomorrow. More, you're lazy and tomorrow. But Jesus says in Christ that the Sabbath, which is more than a day, is blessed. It's holy. It's set apart. And it's done. And so the way that we would practice that is to stop, is to delight, and to worship. Are you taking time to practice the Sabbath? Because practice doesn't actually make perfect. It just makes permanent. We are practicing one Sabbath or another, either Edens or Egypt's. We're practicing something. The question is, is does the practice that we are doing line up with the person that we're worshiping? Can we point to the, the spaces and places and the margins in our life and show to the world and to Pharaoh and to the Spirit of God and to the church of God and to our kids that we worship him and not Pharaoh, that we worship the one who made the seventh day and keeps it holy and keeps it blessed? Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.